Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, On Lostness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 15, 2019. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I can't begin to count how many times I've sung these famous lines from John Newton's Amazing Grace. I learned the hymn when I was a little girl, and I still find its assured language moving and beautiful. But here's the thing. I'm not convinced anymore that I can fit my faith into its neat before-and-after story. I once was lost, but now I'm found. The truth is, my lostness isn't over. Lostness remains a central feature of my relationship with God, and if this week's Gospel reading has anything to say about it, this is exactly as it should be. As Luke sets the scene, Jesus is in trouble once again for hanging out with the wrong people. As all the tax collectors and sinners come near to listen to him, the Pharisees and scribes begin to grumble. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. In response, Jesus tells the scandalized religious insiders two parables. In the first, a shepherd leaves his flock of 99 to look for a single lamb that is lost. He searches until he finds it, and when he does, he carries that one lamb home on his shoulders, invites his friends and neighbors over, and throws a party to celebrate. In the second, a woman loses one of her ten silver coins. Immediately, she lights a lamp and sweeps her entire house, looking carefully for the coin until she finds it. Then, like the shepherd, she calls together her friends and neighbors and asks them to celebrate the recovery of the coin. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The first thing that strikes me about these parables is how many years I spent misreading them. For a long time, I thought that the lost lamb and the lost coin represented sinners out there. Out there beyond the fold, beyond the home country I call Christianity, beyond the purview of God, the church, and me. But no. The lost lamb in the first parable belongs to the shepherd's flock from the very beginning of the story. It is his lamb. Likewise, the coin in the second parable belongs to the woman before she loses it. The coin is one of her very own. In other words, these parables are not about lost outsiders finding salvation and becoming Christians. These parables are about us, the insiders, the churchgoers, the bread and wine consumers, the Bible readers. These are parables about lostness on the inside. What does this mean? Well, it means that lostness isn't an experience exclusive to non or not yet Christians. Lostness happens to God's people. It happens within the beloved community. It's not that we cross over once and for all from a sinful lostness to a righteous foundness. We get lost over and over again, and God finds us over and over again. Lostness is not a blasphemous aberration. It's part and parcel of the life of faith. But what does it mean to be lost? It means so many things. It means we lose our sense of belonging. We lose our capacity to trust. We lose our felt experience of God's presence. We lose our will to persevere. Some of us get lost when illness descends on our lives and God's goodness starts to look not so good. Some of us get lost when death comes too soon and too suddenly for someone we love, 
and we experience a crisis of faith that leaves us reeling. Some of us get lost when our marriages die. Some of us get lost when our children break our hearts. Some of us get lost in the throes of addiction or anxiety or lust or unforgiveness or hatred or bitterness. Some of us get lost very close to home, within the very walls of the church. We get lost when prayer turns to dust in our mouths, when the scriptures we once loved lie dead on the page, when sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning makes our skin crawl, when even the most well-intentioned sermon sucks the oxygen out of our lungs, when the table of bread and the wine that once nourished us now leaves us hungry, cranky, bewildered, or bored. We get lost. We get so miserably lost that the shepherd has to wander through the craggy wilderness to find us. We get so wholly lost that the housewife has to light her lamp, pick up her broom, and sweep out every nook and cranny of her house to discover what's become of us. For the record, these versions of lostness aren't trivial. Notice that the searching in these parables is not a show. The shepherd isn't just pretending to look for the lost sheep. The woman isn't just putting on an act with her lamp and broom. What's lost is really, truly lost, even though the seeker is God. Can we pause for a moment and take in how astonishing this is, that God contends with genuine stakes when it comes to our lostness? God experiences authentic, real-time loss. God searches, God persists, God lingers, and God plods. God wanders over hills and valleys looking for his lost lamp. God turns the house upside down looking for her lost coin, and when at last God finds what God is looking for, God cannot contain the joy that wells up inside. So God invites a whole neighborhood over, shares the happy news of recovery, and throws a party to end all parties. I'll admit it, this is not how I generally picture God. I can't easily imagine God as a foolishly love-hungry shepherd leaving the 99 behind to crawl through bushes and clamber over ledges in search of the one. I can barely conceive of God as a housewife bent over her broom, poking into dusty, cobwebby corners, hoping to spot a silvery glimmer in the shadows. I struggle to conceive of God as one who seeks the small, the seemingly insignificant, the hard to find, the just plain difficult. Maybe the most scandalous aspect of these lost and found parables is not that I still get lost. Maybe what's most scandalous is what they reveal about the nature of God. God the searcher, the seeker, the determined, dogged finder. If Jesus' parables are true, then God doesn't hang out where I assume he does. If Jesus' parables are true, then God isn't in the fold with the 99 insiders. God isn't curled up on her couch polishing the nine coins she's already sure of. God is where the lost things are. God is where lostness reigns. God is in the darkness of the wilderness. God is in the remotest corners of the house. God is where the search is at its fiercest. Meaning, if I want to find God, I have to seek the lost. I have to get lost. I have to leave the safety of the inside and venture out. I have to recognize my own lostness and consent to be found. This isn't easy, not by a long shot. For one thing, it's so hard for me to believe that I'm worth looking for. That I'm not expendable. That I'm loved enough and desired enough to warrant a long, hard, diligent search. It's so hard to trust that God won't give up on me. That God does God's best work when I'm utterly lost and unable to find myself. 
The God will feel so much joy at my recovery that he'll tell the whole world the good news and throw us all a party. But this is, in fact, the case. Jesus tells these parables to religious insiders who won't admit to their own lostness. He shares these stories with folks who can't reconcile their brand of piety with Jesus' bewildering claim that lostness has its virtues. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor makes a strong case for these virtues. She argues that lostness makes us stronger at the edges and softer at the center. Lostness teaches teaches us about vulnerability, about empathy, about humility, about patience. Lostness shows us who we really are and who God really is. The 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi said, What you seek is seeking you. This is true, and this is grace. But maybe it's even truer that what I can't or won't seek is still seeking me. God looks for us when our lostness is so convoluted and so profound, we can't even pretend to look for God. But even in that bleak and hopeless place, God finds us. This is amazing grace, and it is ours. For books this week, Dan reviews 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari, born in 1976, an an Israeli historian and professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, is one of those writers who has become so wildly successful that he now faces the challenge that anything he writes will be published. In his book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Harari explored our human past. In Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, he pondered our future. These two books have sold over 12 million copies and been translated into 45 languages. His newest book zooms in on our here and now. What is happening right now on our planet as a whole? And what is the deep meaning of these events? The biggest challenges our species has ever encountered, he says, are information technology and biotechnology. Think of artificial intelligence, big data, the pervasive power of algorithms, and genetic engineering. Now factor in environmental collapse. In the past, we have had big stories like communism, fascism, and Western liberalism. But in Harari's view, all of these explanatory frameworks are finished. Today, we face what he calls a nihilist moment as we search for a new story. Harari's book reads like a disjointed collection of previously published essays that have been reworked and then only loosely stitched together. For example, there's a chapter called Religion and another one called God that are separated by 75 pages and four other chapters on immigration, terror, war, and humility. All the chapter titles are just one word. All these 21 lessons display Harari's encyclopedic learning and his interest in macro-level interpretations. As he puts it, my agenda is global. But given the format, they glide along the surface. One reviewer noted his grandiloquent sweeping generalizations. He's very dismissive of religion, for example, as an elaborate fiction that is based on the flimsiest foundations. Monotheism, he writes, was one of the worst ideas in human history. Religion, he says, is no match for science, economics, and technology. The secular ideal, by contrast, he writes, has a commitment to the truth which is based on observation and evidence, rather than on mere faith. At the end of the book, Harari offers no new alternative story. His response to our nihilist moment of biotech disruption is to commend personal meditation, 
which he discovered at the age of 24 when he took a 10-day Vipassana retreat while at Oxford. Today he meditates for two hours every day, and each year he takes a longer retreat of a month or two. He's a vegan and does not own a cell phone. He lives with his husband on a moshav, or a cooperative agricultural community near Jerusalem. The subtitle of his last chapter, called Meditation, is Just Observe. But are breathing techniques a meaningful response to biotech? Harari might be bold and breezy, as one British critic put it, but he's still a rollicking good read. For movies this week, Dan reviews I Am Maris, Portrait of a Young Yogi. Maris DeGener was 13 years old and a freshman in high school when her mother picked her up at school one day and asked why she was wearing sweatpants and a hoodie on a sweltering hot day. She then noticed the precise row of cuts on Maris's wrist. Later, she found a Tupperware full of vomit in her bedroom. Sleep problems, anxiety attacks, hair loss, a dangerously low heart rate, and dramatic weight loss landed Maris in the hospital with a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. The first part of this film is an unvarnished account of the family's experience of this terrible mental illness. The documentary features interviews with her parents and therapists who unpack the layers of ignorance, fear, denial, blame, and guilt. The second part of the film is very different and made me uncomfortable. After her hospitalization, Maris discovered yoga and even became a certified yoga instructor at the age of 15 as a way to find healing for her body, soul, and spirit. Her story was picked up by NPR, Seventeen, and CNN, Teen Overcomes Anorexia Through Yoga. Her Instagram account, Yoga Maris, has 40,000 followers. Maris went to college. Yes, there is an acknowledgement of the brutal reality that mental illness is a lifelong struggle for most people, with no easy solutions. And it is clear that many young people have found help in Maris's blog and teaching. But is it really helpful to title the last two parts of the story, Exalted Warrior and Hero Pose? The website for the film says that it wants to offer a hopeful and helpful point of view that with mental illness, healing is truly possible. But should we really ask or expect this sort of thing from a recovering 20-year-old girl? I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And lastly, for poetry this week, Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 15th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.